It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to part two of our Economist radio series on Britain and Europe. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor, and here's a flavour of what it's all about. We got Britain out of the Euro bailout schemes, we vetoed a treaty that was not in our national interests, and we stopped attempts to discriminate against EU countries outside the Eurozone, not least with our successful legal challenge last month. We've made vital progress on cutting red tape and completing the single market, and at our G8 in Lockerne, we kick-started the talks on what will be the biggest bilateral trade deal in history between the EU and the US. The mission to get a better deal for Britain in Europe has been keeping the Prime Minister, David Cameron, busy. He likened himself to the actor Tom Cruise, winning the day in Mission Impossible back in March, when he updated MPs on his negotiation with the European Union, much to the amusement of Labour's then-leader, Ed Miliband. He didn't mention the stand he took against President Juncker. He lost that 26 votes to two. And he didn't mention either the £1.7 billion bill from Brussels, where his attitude was, can't pay, won't pay, oh, all right, we will pay up. <laughs> ah, and, Mr Nicola, let me just tell him my personal favourite over five years. Who can forget the Prime Minister's phrase, and I quote, in this town, you need to lock and load and have one up the spout. Mr, Mr. Speaker, up the spout, that's exactly where his European policy is. Not so much Tom Cruise, more David Brent. Dominic Cummings, a former special adviser, who since leaving the government has pulled no punches as a critic, is a man drafted in to help put together the no campaign for the referendum. Dominic, we heard the Prime Minister there talking about this being mission impossible and casting himself perhaps a bit immodestly as Tom Cruise. What do you reckon to that? Well, he is in an extremely difficult position. Why did he promise this referendum in the first place? He had a combination of um, disasters, various disasters befalling his government in 2011 and 2012 and huge and growing pressure from UKIP. And this is what pushed him into making this promise in the first place. It was never something that he wanted to do. Everyone who knows David Cameron knows that for, in some ways, understandable reasons, he never wanted to touch the European issue or a referendum on in or out. But, of course, the whole dynamic in the European Union itself is towards ever closer union and towards further centralisation of power in Brussels. You know the Prime Minister relatively well, at least you've worked in close proximity uh, to his agenda. Paint a picture for us, if you could, of Mr Cameron going to the European Council, which was in late June. And he, he gave his talk there, his pitch, if you like, to try and get a bit of help from the other Europeans mm -hmm. on the renegotiation. How did that go? It obviously went badly, but, but I think it's important for people to realise that uh, what he's saying is not a priority in Europe. His, his comments at the dinner were, you know, item eight or something on the agenda. So his renegotiation is very far from top priority in either Brussels or Paris or Berlin or, in fact, any of the European capitals. 
When it comes to renegotiation, what do the voters want? I know you've done some primary research on what voters would actually like out of this. Fundamentally, the voters the voters are very concerned that over the years there's been a steady loss of control over vital areas to the European Union institutions. Obviously, at the moment, the issue of border control, asylum and immigration is, is a big concern. And, of course, EU rules have increasingly confined what British governments can do in terms of the domestic economy and in terms of public services. So, for example, EU procurement rules affect all sorts of things from school buildings to hospital buildings, you name it. And there's a general feeling in Britain, I think, that no one wants to go back to the to the past of competing in hostile nation states, but we also want to take back control over certain things. You know, in the 1970s, uh, it was a completely different feel. Germany had recovered much better than us from the war. Britain was a basket case in many ways. And joining the European community was seen as a modernising step for Great Britain then. Now it's seen very differently. What does the No campaign need to do to win? Overall, in terms of public opinion, there's roughly a third of the public who are strongly committed to the European project. There's a third of the public who are strongly hostile to it. And there's a third of the public who now do not have much enthusiasm for it, but they're also very concerned about the idea of leaving. And they are worried about what kind of ructions might, might be involved. And so what the No campaign has to do is explain how we would be, like dozens of other countries around the world, we would have a free trade deal with the European Union. We would cooperate them in a friendly way in many areas. We'd have sensible rules on movement of people. And the sky wouldn't fall, it, things wouldn't change very much on a, in the short term, but there would be other significant advantages. The £20 billion a year that we now send over to Brussels we would keep, we could invest that in our, it's four times our science budget, imagine what it could do there. It's half our school's budget, imagine what it could do there. So I think the, the, those are the crucial things that, that we, have to, we have to explain. But just be precise for me, if you could, what would you be saying no to in this referendum? And what would be the likely consequence? Britain leave the next day, the next year? So as a matter of just legal fact, the next day nothing would change. Essentially what would happen is that a new British government team would have to go and negotiate a new deal with the European Union. It would hash out what that trading arrangement would look like. Um, it's also possible, I think, that if the British did say no, it would be such a big, uh, such a huge event, really, in European history, that there would be a lot of soul searching on the continent as well about uh, uh, about how they are going to respond to that. You can imagine a situation in which there is a deal where we say, okay, you Euro countries, plow on. You want to do this. We'll stop blocking you. We'll stop getting in your way, as we have done over the last 20 years. You guys go ahead and do that. But we are going to take back power in various areas ourselves. And that's the flip side of the deal. So no wouldn't necessarily mean out. It's, at the moment, it's really impossible to say. It, it would, In terms of what the British public would have voted for, it, it would mean that, because that's the question on the ballot paper. But how the British government and the European governments respond to that vote is an unknowable thing at the moment. If it seems likely the new bailout deal doesn't happen, it could well be that they decide to bring forward themselves their timetable for a new treaty before 2025 and roll that into the British negotiations. So it's a very, very complex, multidimensional situation and very unclear now how things will look in, in at the end of 2017. With me is John Pete, who's writing The Economist's special report on Britain and the EU, and Christine Ockrent, a French journalist, former editor of L'Express newspaper and frequent commentator on current affairs. 
John, the Prime Minister would like us to believe there's a third way involving renegotiation and maybe a partial opt-out from those pesky bits of the European agenda he doesn't like, is that? Well, I mean, Britain has quite a lot of opt-outs from European rules already uh, and it's clearly it's not a part of the single currency, which is perhaps the biggest opt-out of all. And I, and I think that the other things he's asking for are mostly fairly small. Uh, he's not going to get a sort of general opt-out from all social and employment regulation in Brussels because the other countries simply won't accept that. So what he's asking for is mostly going to be quite small stuff. Christine Ockrent, is there a third way that you can envisage looking at it from the French perspective? And I don't believe so at all. You know, the third way, it's like plan B. Uh, It just doesn't exist. And I must say there's a sort of fatigue about Britain on the continent. And I don't see how uh, Mr. Cameron could actually find any allies uh, when he's got uh, the hand on the door handle and his coat on. And as John uh, put it, there are very few demands uh, which might eventually be agreed upon by other EU members. What is Mr Cameron after and what can he realistically expect? Well, I mean, he has put some things down on the table, which he's been a little bit vague about, but he clearly wants wants some changes to the rules for benefits for, for, for migrants. He wants a bigger role for national parliaments. He wants to have some kind of understanding that the phrase ever closer union doesn't apply to the United Kingdom. Uh, and he wants some assurance that countries inside the euro don't discriminate against countries that are outside. And it is therefore a bit of, of political theatrics. He has to be able to say, I fought hard. I had a battle with Paris and Berlin and Brussels over some of these things and I've managed to secure changes that have made the European Union much better for Britain and then present that to the British people. But it it will be slightly a rerun of 1975 when Harold Wilson did the same thing. How would you describe, Christine, the the view of a possible Brexit in France? On the one hand, it it would upset the apple cart a, a bit and it could also be seen to remove a barrier to that ever closer union which London is opposed to and which France has always stood up for. You know, the French tend to be extremely self-centred, uh, at least as much as the Brits. The, the Brexit debate is a very British debate and I don't see much of it, uh, at least for the time being, uh, even being covered in, in the French media. That being said, I'm convinced that all the arguments going back and forth in Britain about Europe will eventually uh, impact the French political debate, if only uh, because of of the timing. The the French Conservatives will have their primaries uh, in November 16. And, of course, the British arguments will revive the old wounds uh, in France uh, 10 years after that referendum, which uh, Jacques Chirac, the then president, lost. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll have these old scars, which will actually bleed again. Old scars which will bleed again. It sounds like uh, Christine Ockrent is saying that the Eurosceptic bug is going to cross the channel. It, it is interesting because when the European project was first begun back in the 1950s, there was quite a strong streak of opinion in France, not just from de Gaulle, but also from other others in the French elite, that they didn't really want the British to be the leaders of this project. They wanted France to be the leader. And that really was one of the underlying thoughts that led de Gaulle to veto the first applications of 
Britain to join. And I think that that has changed a lot now because, interestingly, what's happened in the last sort of 15, 20 years is that the French seem to me to be much less enthusiastic about the European Union than they used to be. And I think they often perceive it as too Anglo-Saxon, too pro-free trade, too liberal. So they have changed their position over the years. Is there a bit of the French that rather admires... I would not like to say the French are naturally stubborn, but that just uh, admires Mr Cameron for putting himself on the line for this. Well, I think Mr Cameron, first of all, he he, he was brilliantly re-elected, uh, and so that you know wins respect. That being said, uh, I think Mr Cameron's image is one of a, a smooth, short-term uh, manoeuvring politician rather than um, a politician with a vision. David Cameron might put it rather differently, uh, John Pete. He might say, well, I'm trying to make the union more economically liberal, fairer to perhaps less integrationist members like Britain. These are not terribly odd goals. There should be some way of achieving them. With a bit of skillful theatrics, he can sell a package of some concessions alongside the notion that actually... Britain is in the slow lane, it's different from other countries, it's not proceeding towards the United States of Europe in the way that perhaps France, Germany and others might do. Christine Ockrant, in a long career, you've seen a lot of leaders uh, struggle and some triumph when people said that they couldn't do it. Is your instinct that Mr Cameron can pull off this combination of renegotiation but staying in the EU on terms that he can sell to his own party? I believe uh, he can as long as there's no oversell and as long as there is not um, too much unreasonable expectation as to what other EU members might accept. John Pete, there is an additional complexity to the British position when it comes to a possible Brexit, which is what on earth would happen to Scotland? Well, I think this will come into the, the campaign for the referendum because because the Scottish nationalists, have, have, having lost the vote on Scottish independence last year, have started to mutter and make clear that if Britain as a whole decides to leave the European Union, but Scotland as a single unit would prefer to stay, then they may use that as an excuse to have another referendum on independence. So the threat to the union of the United Kingdom will be one of the things that the yes side wants to deploy. Double jeopardy. Yes. Thank you, John Pete and Christine Ockrent. Renegotiating Britain's dealings with Europe will be a slippery business, but Mr Cameron just needs enough movement to soften Eurosceptic resistance on his own side and get that yes vote he's pledged to fight for in the bag. Next week, in our final instalment, we'll be leaving the technocratic discussions to one side and looking at the cultural and historic reasons why Britain feels less warm about the EU than many other European countries. And I'll be asking The Economist's editor, Zanny Minton-Beddows, how the paper is approaching the run-up to the big vote and getting an insight into her thinking on what matters most in this great debate. Till then, goodbye, auf Wiedersehen and au revoir. The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.